Nehemiah 13. It is the end of the book of Nehemiah. We've been going through the book of Nehemiah for about three months or so, and it has been really great to see how God speaks to us today through his word that's over 2,400 years ago, and it still applies today and is extremely relevant to our own lives as God's people continuing. So um, turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13. And as I said, it's the last chapter. And if you read ahead in Nehemiah 13, you might have found that it is a different chapter. The first six chapters of the book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah rallies the people of God. They rebuild the city. Everything's going great. And then the people respond and they're reformed in chapter 7 through 12. And, and you see this great restoration of the people of God. In chapter 10, they began to make these commitments to God and respond to him and be changed. And so the first 12 chapters of the book of Nehemiah are really encouraging. And if I was writing a movie script, I would end the book there. Because like the most, most good movies, they end on a high point or something good or something huge happening. And so uh, chapter 12, it ends with this kind of celebration of the people of God. And they are committed to the work of God and reforms are going on and everything is great. And that would be a fairy tale ending, but it's not real. You know, we don't live in a fairy tale. We don't live in the movies. We don't live in a world where everything ends out great. You know, I wish life were like that for me on a daily basis. There are moments in my life that are wonderful where God is at work and, and I feel and experience the presence of God and respond to God and, and begin to follow him. And then if the clip ended there, that would be great. But often in our lives, we struggle to remain consistent and faithful to God. And, and that's where we live a lot of the time if we're really honest. Day by day, we don't live on these glorious mountaintops that Nehemiah 12 ended with, but we often live in the place of Nehemiah 13. In Nehemiah 13, it's kind of almost anticlimactic. All the reforms have happened. All the people have responded. They've made these great commitments. And then all of a sudden, you're like, what? what, what? What's going on here? What's happened? Now, now Nehemiah 13 is the people have failed again, again, again. And, you know, it's... it's it's like a bad ending to Groundhog Day. If you ever saw that old movie, it's, they wake up again. And you're like, what happened here? I thought everything was going great. And yet the people have left and neglected the things of God. The people have neglected and replaced the things of God with other things. So let's read and see how, how can we understand what God is doing? How do we understand what to do when we find our lives like that? What do we do when we find our lives in the place where we're not ending on a mountaintop, but where we're, we failed again? What do we do? It doesn't paint a picture that is a fairy tale, but it does give us insight into who we are and how do we respond? And where is our hope? And, and what in the world do we do when we confront complacency? And how do we receive God's grace? Because we all need God's grace, don't we? And more often, we can live in moments like Nehemiah 13, and we are desperately in need of God's grace. Well, let's turn the Bibles and, and let's read God's word. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. 
Now just to pause for a second to a little explanation here is verses one through three are kind of like the end of the movie and the people responding and then all of a sudden Nehemiah says, well, now let me explain. Let me explain, though, what's happened right before that in case you're wondering why are we again at this place of repentance. So look in verse four. He explains that. He says, now, before this, before verses one through three, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, and I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with a grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, the oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and and loading them with donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you were doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the doors should be shut and gave orders they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates and keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half the children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. 
Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. And that's how the book of Nehemiah ends. Well, let's pray and ask God for help. Father, we come to such a sobering passage as this. Lord, I pray that, that we would be personally sobered by this passage. That, Lord, we would receive the warning that you have for your people from this passage. But, God, I pray that we would also receive hope from you. God, I, I pray that by this passage, as we understand and apply it to our life, that we would receive your grace that we would look to you in hope. We wouldn't look to anything we build or do, Lord. We wouldn't look to any work that we complete, Lord, but we would look to you and you alone. And God, thank you that you have provided hope for us in your son. May we look to your son for hope, I pray. God, give me grace to speak today and give grace to everyone to hear. Lord, would you fill us with your spirit to enable us to both hear and to receive from you. Lord, make us alive to you. Lord, let us not be complacent. But Lord, let us live for you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if it was discovered, you know, in the news in the past few years, there have been different discoveries of how drinking water has been tainted throughout different places in the nation. And if it was discovered that your drinking water was tainted and it had been tainted for a while, would you keep drinking it? If it was discovered that, you know, it's not going to kill you right away, but if you drink it every day for a year, it, it'll eventually poison you. It's just going to slowly shut your liver, your kidneys down. It's, it's going to kill you slowly, but you won't really notice it for a while. Would you still drink it? I hope not. It should be a resounding no right now, by the way, in case you're wondering, what do we do? What do we say here? Will we drink it? Mm, I guess not. You know, maybe you're thinking, I've got a life straw, I'm good, you know. If it was discovered that your house was built over a poisonous radon gas leak, and apparently one in, I'm not trying to create panic in you, but like one in 15 homes has, has a potential for radon gas. That's why there's vapor barriers and things like that. But if your home was under a poisonous radon gas leak, would you stay there another night? Or would you say, you know what, I, I need to make some precautions so that we take care of it before I stay there to make sure that we're safe. You know, hey, after all, radon's only going to kill you after mm, a couple years and give you lung cancer, and it's a slow death. Would you stay there? And that's, that's a question. Would you stay there? No. You can say no. It's okay. You know, would you want to be confronted with the problem of poison gas or poisoned water? Or would you rather ignore it? Would you rather let it go on? You know, what would you like? 
You know, what if it's something more subtle? What if you were addicted to prescription drugs and prescription opiates and, and you had an addiction and it felt good and it felt like every time you took these things they were good for you but they were slowly killing your, your body. Would, would you want someone to confront you with it? That one's a little harder, right? Because you might enjoy it. You might, you know, you might feel like you need it and so you might not, I don't have a problem. I'm just doing this because I'm in pain. You know, most, most people in that state are in a state of denial of some kind. But if you were thinking clearly, would you want to know objectively? Would you want to stop? Would you want to be confronted? Now, I don't mean the moment. In the moment, we'd probably be like, no thanks, I don't want somebody telling me about my problems. But really, it's eminently loving to tell somebody that there's poisonous gas, that there's poison water, that they have a, an opiate addiction. It's eminently loving to rescue them And so what we see here is Nehemiah, he has been gone for a while. We're not sure exactly how long he's been gone, but when he comes back, he confronts them. And at first their response is, man, like, like who, who poisoned Nehemiah's Cheerios? Like who, who spit in his milk? You know, what happened to him? Why is he so upset? He, he's, he's angry here and he says, I'm very angry. And he's pulling hair out and there's kind of bizarre things happening here and he's beating people. Now, again, you have to remember, Nehemiah is a governor, and so as a governor, he is carrying out God's justice, and so these things are not just uh, a person reacting badly, and so this is not a prescription for you to go and beat somebody up if they annoy you, okay, or to confront somebody by beating them. That's, that's not what the scripture's all about. It's, it's, it's not a license to go and pull out somebody's hair. I hear that's painful. But he is loving them. He is lovingly confronting them because they have grown complacent over time. Nehemiah, he tells us in, in, in verse 6 that he, had been a, he was governor for about 12 years and then he went back to Artaxerxes. So somehow between chapter 12 and chapter 13, Nehemiah thought everything was wrapped up and done. He put away his book after chapter 12 and everything was cool. And then he carries out another 12 or 11 and a half years of his, of his governorship. And then he goes back to Babylon probably to be with Artaxerxes. He's finished his mission. He's been the governor. Everything's stable. 12 years, right? Things should be stable by then. Right? A people should be stable by then. A church should be stable by then, right? Everything's good. Everything's good when you, when you have a church 10, 15 years old. Yeah, everything's great, right? Everything's fine. And no, what he finds, though, is he went away. We don't know exactly how long. Maybe, maybe eight or nine years or so. How do we know that? Well, the kids have grown up, and they're speaking other languages. They don't speak the language. So there's enough time for people to marry, intermarry with other cultures. Um, and, and it was enough time for them not only to intermarry, but to have children, to raise them up. And, and there was half their kids didn't speak Hebrew or whatever language at the time, Aramaic. So he'd been, he'd been away for a while and he comes back and he sees that, oh my goodness, the people have lapsed back. They become complacent. And that's a challenge for everybody. That's a challenge for all people of all times. All throughout history, a challenge to God's people is to become complacent. And so the end of the book of Nehemiah, it's really a warning against complacency, and it's relevant for today, because you know what? You can think, if you've been a Christian for five years, for 10 years, for 15 years, or maybe you've been in a church for a while, that everything's going great, and it's easy to get comfortable, and it's easy for complacency to build, and for you not to realize that there are some real problems we need to address in our own lives that need to be confronted 
It's like the people had been drugged and they don't seem to care. He comes back to an entirely different people. This is not the same people who were really excited about rebuilding and who said, yes, God, we're going to live everything for you. We're going to do everything we can. We're going to forsake all other gods and we're going to give everything we have. We're going to give regularly. We're going to tithe. We're going to do all these things. And he comes back and these are not the people he left. In fact, they aren't even worshiping God. The Levites aren't teaching. There's all kinds of bad stuff happening. They've intermarried. Their arch enemies are in the city. And he finds they've grown complacent with the world around them. And they need to be confronted with God's word so they can receive God's grace. And so we see this really this main idea I want us to see this morning is that the complacency with worldliness, complacency with the world around us, that's what we see in this passage. Complacency with worldliness, it brings sin, but confrontation based on God's word or confrontation with God's word, it brings grace. The main motive of Nehemiah is not just to beat them up. It's not to punish them. It's not to harass them. It's because he wants them to be in the place where they can receive God's grace and the the best place for them is in the active worship of God in their whole lives. And what he sees is the direct reverse. Imagine if Nehemiah had come back and he saw that everything was in disrepair, that the people had left the reforms. Imagine if he didn't confront them. You know, would that be loving? Would, would that have really been kind if, if Nehemiah didn't confront them? If he saw, oh, you know what? The whole purpose of rebuilding this city was for the worship of God to happen. The whole purpose was to restore the people of God to a place of freedom and grace and the joy of the Lord. But you know what? They're not experiencing that stuff, but that's no big deal. Because, hey, we get this nice city, we get this nice temple. That would have been eminently unkind of Nehemiah. They needed Nehemiah to confront them so they could be restored, even if they didn't know it or didn't want it. And I bet just a few of those people didn't really want it. It would have been, would have been unkind for him to come back and ignore what they were doing and leave them in sin, but God loves his people too much. God loves his people. That's what we see in this chapter. God loves his, too, his people too much to let them persist in worldliness. God loves his people too much to let them persist in complacency and sin. And so he sends Nehemiah back. I'm not sure how Nehemiah found out or if he just happened to say, hey, I'll go back and check on things. And he was alarmed. But God lovingly sent, graciously sent Nehemiah to bring correction so that they could be restored to him. And, and complacency in sin is dangerous. And they need to be confronted or sin would grow. It causes sin to grow. But confrontation with God's word, it causes grace to grow. And there's really three areas we see. In verses 4 to 14, we're going to see that replacing the worship of God is what they're confronted on. He confronts them for replacing the worship of God with the worship of other things. And then he confronts them again. So there's kind of three sections of confrontation. In 4 to 14, he confronts them for replacing the worship of God. And in 15 to 22, he confronts them for replacing the rest of God. And I don't mean as in like the remainder of God, but as in the Sabbath rest, the resting in God. He confronts them for replacing rest in God with resting in other things. And then he confronts them in verse 23 to 29 with replacing holiness to God with literally living how they wanted. Living how they wanted. And, and at first, you know, as you read, read the first three verses, it was a little confusing me to realize, okay, now before all this is kind of what he's talking about. He's explaining why those reforms were necessary. Why, why the reforms are necessary is because God's people they need to be confronted for replacing worship of God. That's what we see. Nehemiah, he was away from Jerusalem. He'd been away for quite some time. They probably didn't expect him to come back. Otherwise, they would have at least faked it, right? You know, if, if I'm, 
I remember when I was a kid and I, I'd be left home alone when I was sick and I'd be home and I'd, I'd make these chocolate cakes from scratch and I'd make the whole kitchen a nasty mess and then like at three o'clock, my mom was a teacher, I realized, oh my goodness, my mom's about to come home. And so I'd like rush and I'd make an attempt at least to clean up. I mean, it never worked because she was always like, I thought you were sick, what were you doing? Well, I got bored, you know. I made a mess of things, you know. I at least tried to cover it up. But there, there, there's no covering up here. That's just they're living this huge mess. And he, he, me and I, he, he finds them in this mess. And what he finds first, we see in, in, in verse four on, is Eliashib, the high priest, he had taken the house of God, where they were supposed to be bringing the regular tithes of God into the house of God, and he had taken these, this big storeroom in, in the temple And think about that. The temple was the holiest place of all of Israel and the holiest place in Jerusalem. And it was the place where the holy of holies was contained within there. And so outside of there was all all of the temple was dedicated to the worship of God. It was supposed to remain pure and holy and sanctified and set apart for God's purposes. And yet Eliashib, he's probably the high priest. and, And now what he's done... He's like, yeah, I don't really, we don't really need that. I'm going to move all the stuff out that's meant to worship God. I'm going to replace the stuff that's meant for the worship of God. And, and what he replaces it with is Tobiah. Now, if you have read Nehemiah or been following along, in the beginning of, of Nehemiah, Tobiah was one of the two main like, arch enemies of the Jews. He was one of the arch enemies who was opposed to the rebuilding efforts. And he was trying to supplant and subvert the whole thing the whole time. And yet now we find the very enemy of God has been moved into the house of God. He's replaced the worship of God with Tobiah, the evil one. And so Tobiah is living in the temple. Now, if you have know anything about um, the, the Jewish worship culture, the idea of even having a Gentile in the outer courts of the temple is defiling, but to have a, a, a Gentile come into the temple to visit is defiling even more, but the idea of a Gentile living there would be permanently defiling. And that's what the high priest, the guy who's supposed to uphold all these things, he's done. He's replaced the worship of God with the worship of other things and worship of people. He's evacuated the storeroom of the temple to sustain worship, and instead he's made room for an enemy of God to take up residence. Now think about that for a moment. Now, he literally did that, but at the same time, that, that's a picture of our hearts. You know, we, we don't have a physical temple anymore, but we ourselves are the temple of God. We are set apart for the purposes of God, meant to be a holy people, to declare his praise, to declare his worship. And yet so often in our own hearts, what we do is we set aside the things of God. We set aside the worship of God in our hearts And we make room for other desires, evil desires in our heart to displace the worship of God in our own life. That's that's easy to do. It's easy for us to do. And think, you know what? This doesn't really apply to us until you start to think, wait a minute. If if we are now the temple, how can we do this? Well, I I think all of of us do that from time to time. We, we, We replace the worship of God in our lives where our whole life is dedicated to the worship of God as a believer, as as we who are the temple of the Holy Ghost, and instead we can move other things in, and it's no less evil when we do. You know, where have we allowed other desires to replace the desire for worship of God in our life? Where have we put ease or comfort or wealth or success ahead? 
You know, Tobiah wasn't just a Gentile. He opposed the work of God, and he was one of God's enemies. And, but he was also probably influential in the area. He was probably a ruler outside of Israel. So I, I don't know the exact motives. We're not told about that. But I can imagine for Eliashib, he's thinking, hey, I'm the high priest. And so you know what? It's going to be a lot easier if I make friends with this other worldly leader here because it's going to be a lot easier. Maybe he'll provide for us, or maybe we can rely on him for security since Nehemiah is gone. And, and then we see something else that's a little strange is that he's related now to Tobiah in some way. And the high priest wasn't even supposed to marry any foreigner, and yet somehow he's either let his children or some relative of his has married into Tobiah's family. You know, and, and, and now he's got a hard time because he's got this family member living and defiling the temple. You know, it's hard when you have somebody in your family that's not honoring God, isn't it? And how do you relate to them? How do you, how do you practically love a family member? How do, you, how do you love them when they're living in sin? How do you love them and yet not accommodate their sin? You know, I imagine those were pressures for him to give in to things, to condone or enter into sin. And, and he probably felt that pressure to please his relative, Tobiah, more than to please God because that's what he was doing. And that's how those things, we worship other things when those desires creep into our own lives. When we desire to please people, instead of pleasing God. When we look to people for our hope instead of looking to God. When we fear man instead of fearing God. You know, maybe he more, worried more about what his family thought about him than, than what God thought about him. You know, maybe he's worrying about whether Thanksgiving dinner or Passover dinner for back then, because they didn't have Thanksgiving, but, you know, he's worried about it being awkward. You know, gee, it's going to be really awkward at Passover this year if I kick Tobiah out, so I'll just kind of let him live there. And, and yet we, we live in that way with other false desires in our heart being motivating desires for us. You know, maybe, maybe Eliashib, he gave in a political pressure since Tobiah was threatening before. We're not exactly sure. But he thought God's holiness wasn't really a big deal. God didn't mind other gods, other false people living in the temple. He didn't mind the temple being defiled. How about for you? Have, you? have you become complacent with your own temple being defiled by other desires? Are you kind of okay with, you know, these are acceptable sins, right? There, there's a book by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins, and I had it on the back of my reading room in, in my bathroom. I had it on the back there, and my, one of my, my son, he walked into the room, and, and he's like, whoa, hang on, Dad. You've got a book called Respectable Sins. I didn't think that was okay. I thought it's not okay for sins to be respectable. And we said, no, no, that's kind of a play on words. What he's saying is that we can, we can treat sins as if they're respectable and become okay with them. We can treat idols and false gods. We can let other desires come in and motivate us, and we're just kind of okay with that. We're kind of subtly okay with the fear, man. We're, we're okay with living for other people's approval. We're okay with, with living for safety and security and, instead of living for God. You know, after all, what's a little compromise? What's a little ongoing sin hurt? They weren't harming anybody else, right? Tobiah was just living in the temple. He wasn't hurting anybody. He was, he was probably even a good tenant. He might even be paying rent. Maybe, you know, hey, since the people weren't tithing anymore, people weren't giving towards the upkeep of the temple, and hey, all the Levites had left. Nobody's preaching the word. Nobody's worshiping. Maybe, Tobiah, maybe Elisha was like, hey, I got to make a little money. Maybe ruin out the temple. You know, what's wrong with that? It's how you make money, right? It's how you get ahead in the world. 
You know, if, if you were told what your life would be like now, 12 years ago, would you want somebody to confront you and warn you about the places that you grieve over now? Would you want people to say, hey, you've, you've been complacent, or hey, in 12 years from now, you're, you're gonna be the place where um, your life is gonna be here because you've grown complacent with sin, and so now sin is wreaking havoc, and sin is ruling in the place of God. Instead of God ruling in the temple, now sin is ruling in the temple, and so, hey, that's where you're gonna be. And, and wouldn't you want somebody to warn you? Wouldn't you want somebody to confront you? How about if somebody could tell you, hey, here are some areas to avoid 12 years from now? You know, I don't know how many of you have little kids, but it's a, it's a frightening thought to think about, okay, 12 years from now, a lot of my kids won't be around anymore. I'll be sending them out. And so what I thought was so important right now, will pro- I probably won't feel like is so important then, and I'll probably think, you know what, I wish I had spent more time in certain areas. Yeah, I wish I'd spent more time just teaching the things of God. How about in your own life? If there were areas that, where your passion for God has waned, would you want somebody to tell you? Are there areas where you pursued God to a greater degree before now that have waned? Were there habits, were there disciplines that helped you draw close to God that are no longer a part of your daily routine? You know, it's easy to lose focus. They, uh, they didn't get here overnight. They, they, didn't, they didn't get to the place where they were allowing somebody who was an enemy of God to set up residence and rule in the temple. They didn't, they didn't get to that place overnight. They didn't get to the place overnight where they stopped tithing and giving, where they stopped all the practice of the worship of God, where they stopped listening to God's word, where they lived for themselves. They didn't get there overnight. Nobody gets there overnight. None of us do. But it should serve as a warning for all of us. You know, selfishness gradually creeps in. It's easy to lose focus. You know, there's a, there's a book by a guy named Kevin DeYoung, he, and he wrote a book called Crazy Busy, and how everybody's just crazy busy right now. And so you ask somebody, hey, how many, you want to get together and pray? You want to get together and read the Bible? You know, I'm just really busy right now. And then and you can delude yourself and thinking, oh, it's just a season. But that's not true. No matter what season of life you find yourself in, you will always be too busy. And I imagine they thought that too. You know what? We just got to do life and we got to plant some fields and we got to do the business of things. So I'll, I'll do that later. It's easy to give in to the daily pressures of life. The habits and patterns we put in place to pursue the Lord can slowly wane and fade and we can become okay with this new normal dispassionate living. That's probably how they got there. You know, the cumulative effect of the daily pressures to give in the cumulative effect of finances, the world around you, your relatives, the daily grind that can wear you down. And we need to be confronted and say, hey, let's not be complacent. Not meanly, not legalistically, but because that leads us to a place where our lives no longer worship God. He, he moved the things of God out of the temple storeroom and moved into Tobiah. He probably thought it was a big deal, but what Nehemiah says, what you, why, why are you doing this great evil? defiling the worship of God, defiling the temple of God, setting a bad example for all the people, and apparently all the people followed along pretty willingly. It says, Nehemiah says, I was very angry. The reason why he was very angry is it appeared that everything he had worked for his whole life, probably the last 30 years by now, or at least 20-some years by now, had, had been undone. And it looks like just through complacency, just people living for themselves. 
And yet, Nehemiah, he longed for the worship of God. And, and that was his goal. That was what motivated him to begin with when he first encountered the problems in Israel and he heard about them. He says, oh, you know, the, the people of God, the, the, the city of God's in ruins, and the people of God are in shame and the name of God is being defamed. The worship of God motivated Nehemiah. It's because we're meant to worship God with our whole lives. Now that our, our bodies are the temple, we're meant to worship God with our bodies. Question is, are we? If not, let's, let's not be okay with that. Let's respond immediately and, and get rid of those things. Let's cleanse the temple. Well, not only did, did Tobiah move in, the work of the temple had stopped. The people were no longer contributing, no longer giving towards, no longer um, collecting for the ministry of the church. And so the fallout is, is that the word of God was not being preached either. The singers, they had gone their own way too. So the Levites and the singers, they had all fled. They went back. So there's nobody to carry out the work of the temple. Instead, they're living for themselves. They're thinking of their own provision. That's a challenge to us. What are we, what are we living for? We live in the worship of God, we live in the worship of ourselves. It's easy to let other things creep into our lives and neglect meeting together, neglect worshiping God. Let's not stay in that place if you find yourself there. You know, I found the house of God was being forsaken, the regular worship of God was not taking place. He made changes right away. Let's not forsake the house of God. Let's not, let's not forsake regular worship. Verse 11 says he confronted the officials, and that was the first of three confrontations. In, in verse 11, he confronts the officials. In verse 17, we see that he confronts the nobles. And then in verse 35, he, he confronts those who had intermarried. There's a lot of confrontation here. This whole passage is confrontation, and, and this, the, the message is confrontational. The, today's message is confrontational because really that's the bulk of what we find in this passage is, is this confrontation of complacency. Now, thank God that as a church, I don't believe that's the case for us, but let's be warned by that passage so that it doesn't become the case for us. I am grateful that there is not a neglecting in this church. I am so grateful. You are doing a great job. There is this is majority of the church is participating in the life of the church. The majority of the church is serving actively. The majority of the church is engaged and involved. And what I want to say is don't become complacent with that. You don't want to get to the place where the people in that day were. The cool thing is, when their sin was confronted, there was a little revival. In verse 12, look, it says, Then all Judah, they're confronted, then all Judah that brings the tithe of the grain, the wine, and all the oil into the storehouses. So, so they were restoring back, restoring back the ministry and the work of God. And then the Levites come back in. He reappoints the Levites again. And so we see this, this mini revival again. That's what happens as we respond to God, that, that we put things back in their place and, and, and the rightful worship of God is restored. Not only the temple been defiled, the regular services, the worship of God was neglected, but the people, they had failed to honor God on the Sabbath. And before we check out and think, you know what, hey, well, we're not legalistic, we don't do the Sabbath thing. There's some principles here we can learn from is, is that it's that principle of rest. You see, the Sabbath was primarily all about we need to rest in God. God created us to rest in him. Yes, he created us for work, but ultimately he created us to, work, to rest in his work. And so God's people need to be confronted for replacing rest in God. They replace their rest in God with resting in other things. 
Nehemiah, he's not being legalistic here, but he's, he's actually wanting to confront them for their good. The Sabbath is supposed to be a day that was set apart as holy for the Lord, for, for their own good. It was a day of rest and refreshment. And think about it. When the people were in captivity in Egypt, they didn't have rest. You can, you can be sure that their captors, that their Egyptian overlords, they were not okay with the Israelites taking a seventh day off. They weren't okay with that. They would have been enslaved to work. They were enslaved to work for someone else, and they had no rest. And so when the first thing that happens is when, when God brings them out of Egypt, one of the first things he, he commands them is to rest. It was for their own good. You know, that God had given them rest in their freedom, and they were unable to be free to stop working every week. Free to say, you know what? I'm not going to trust in my labors. I'm, I'm going to trust in God. We're going to rest. It meant that God freed them from slavery and enabled them to rest in his grace. It was a day for worship of God, where they could know God better through his word. They could meditate on him. They could, they could be free from having to buy and sell and go to Target and, and pay bills and do chores and repair their house or whatever, you know? They didn't have Target back in that day, just to clarify, in case you're wondering. It was a day when they acknowledged, though, that they were reliant on God. They trusted in him by not working or making money. But the people were found doing their business again. They were buying, they were selling on the Sabbath. They're bringing the goods of the city of Jerusalem itself, the holy city. You know, how about us? We don't, we don't observe a Sabbath day any longer. Now, for, for the church, um, it, we celebrate on the first day of the week because we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And so we, we know that Jesus has brought us into an eternal Sabbath rest. And so we don't, we don't legalistically apply the Sabbath laws, but we do set aside a day of worship, a day to rest in him. That principle of needing to set aside a day to be refreshed by God, to, to worship God, to set aside unhurried, undistracted time to read God's word, to meditate on God, to worship him. Because we need it, because it's good for us, because we're free to do that. God brought us out of slavery so we could rest in him. And that that principle also applies in our daily grind as well. We need to set aside a time where we say, God, I need to rest in you. I need to find my rest in you in the midst of my work. But do we have that? Do we have that unhurried time? Do we have undistracted time to read God's word, to meditate on his word, to worship him? You know, so often I can be distracted by so many things and I can just start my day because I wake up with a to-do list in my head. I don't know about you. Do you, you ever wake up aware of all the things you have to get done that day or all the things that you need to change or fix that day? My temptation is to immediately get up and start doing those things. And in that moment, I'm rarely resting in God. And, and I've, I've started subtly doing what the Israelites here did and replacing arresting God with, okay, I, I've got to rest in my to-do list. I've got to rest in what I've got to done. I've got to rest in, in my activity, my work, my effort. I've got to rest in, in, in my provision. If I don't do things, things won't happen. If, if I don't work for the church, then the church won't do well. And if the church doesn't do well, then, then all these other cares can creep in. And when I was in the business world, it was, it was no different, really. You know, if, if I don't go to work and do these eight things that I have to do today, then, then I'm not going to do well. I'm not going to get my bonus. I'm not going to get paid, whatever. You can have all these concerns and cares creep in. 
You know, all the cares of the world can creep in and they can choke out the word because we're not resting in him. I'm not trying to encourage legalism, but we regularly need God's word to speak to us, to refresh us, to sustain us. Times devoted to resting in God and trusting in him. Why? Not, not out of legalism, but because we need it. Because we now have the privilege that we get to rest in him. They actually didn't even have that ultimate Sabbath rest that we now rest in, that Hebrews talks about in, that Hebrews says, it says, beware that you enter into that rest, that Sabbath rest. Strive to enter into rest. What that means is work hard to remind yourself that you need to rest in God and ultimately that's where your trust, your hope is. Instead, they were hoping other things. They were hoping in trade. They were hoping in business. They were hoping activities, and that's easy to get there, hoping in their jobs. And they allow foreigners to come in and do trade with them, and I love the picture here when he, he confronts them, and, he, and then they, they, the foreigners, they all, they all go outside the gates, they're like, hey, we got some fish for sale over here. And he's like, yeah, no, that's not gonna work. Otherwise, I'm gonna lay hands on you. He's not talking about praying for them, by the way. It's just not, it's just not like a kind prayer time he's, he's threatening. He's dealing strongly because it's threatening the people's rest in God. What's threatening your rest in God? What's distracting you? You know, it could be a myriad of things. It could be what your job is, could be kids, could be lots of good things can distract you, can make you think that you must do these things to find rest. Maybe you think that in order to find rest, you need a perfect marriage and to be a perfect husband or a perfect wife and so you're putting your hope there or maybe you're putting your hope and that's a good thing to try to be a good wife and a good husband by the way or maybe you're putting your hope in you know you're, I, I'm going to find my rest in having the best kids and I, I'm going to be do whatever I can to make sure my kids are raised differently than I was or maybe you're finding rest in job security or maybe you're finding rest in something else or health or if I could only have these things and we can replace the rest of God and resting in God with other things and we need to be confronted with that because it's just not good for us. It actually leads us back to a place of bondage where we become in bondage and enslaved to those things we think will give us rest will actually only make us enslaved and you'll find no rest and yet God lovingly confronts us because he wants us to find rest in him alone. Not only people defiled the temple, they neglected corporate worship, they neglected giving, they profaned the Sabbath. They became defiled personally. They didn't take God's concern for their personal holiness seriously. They thought it's no big deal if they marry unbelieving Gentiles. They were personally becoming defiled. And so God's people need to be confronted for replacing holiness to God. God's people need to be confronted for replacing worship to God. They, God's people need to be confronted for replacing rest in God. And God's people also need to be confronted for replacing holiness to God with living for other things. Thinking, acting as if God doesn't care how we live. You know, when I was younger, I think it was somewhere around eight or nine, I can't remember exactly, and probably because of what I'm about to tell you, I can't remember exactly. Um, I was around eight or nine, and I climbed up about 20-some feet up into a tree, and I was at the top of this tree, and the branch broke, and I plummeted face first and cracked my skull and had a concussion, and fourth grade was abysmal the rest of the year because of that, and 
things did not go well, I would have loved if somebody had told me, hey, by the way, if you climb up there, that branch is gonna break and it's gonna be really bad for you. I would have loved it if somebody had, had told me that. I would, have, I would have loved it if someone had warned me of the dangers when I was in my late teens and, and thought that, you know what, it's not a big deal if I just start drinking. It's not a big deal. Everybody else is doing it. You know, it's not a big deal. You know, I, I would have loved it if someone had warned me in, in all these ways and if I had listened you know, the, the people, had, they, had, they needed to be confronted because they were replacing the holiness of God with living for other things, living for themselves, and they didn't think it really mattered, but the consequences of living for yourself, the consequences of, of a child of God not living for God are devastating. He, 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 he focuses in on this intermarriage, and before we think, oh my gosh, they're being racist, um, it's really nothing to do with racism. What it's to do with is they are defiling themselves with being married to people who are worshiping false gods. And he gives, the, how do we know that? Because he gives the example of Solomon. He says, you know what, you think that it's okay living for all these other things is okay. You know, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, and he was the wealthiest guy at the time at least, probably wealthier than Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, whoever those, you know, the, combine all those guys, Jeff Bezos, you know. He's wealthier than all these people combined. He had everything, and you know what led him astray? It was being joined to false gods. It was, it was being joined to women who led him astray and led him into sin, and he was okay with, with unholiness in his life. And the people, now we found that they're okay. Now, they were probably getting married to make arrangements for safety and for security. Because back in that day, when it was very tribal, what they would do is, is they would have their daughter. And you can see this even with Elisha, the high priest. And we're going to see that in a second. Not only was he related to Tobiah. Well, this gets, gets worse. You remember Sam Ballot? He was like the bad dude of the bad dudes in Nehemiah. Elisha, he gives his son to Sam Ballot's daughter. And, and, and he, he, he enters into this union, this unholy union, and it affects him. Don't think that we can play around with unholiness and it won't affect us. You don't assume that if we just, if we just live like we want, that our, our kids are going to be fine. You know, he, he, he harps on them. They don't even know the language, he says. He says, you know, they, half of them don't even speak the language of Judah. Why is that a big deal? Does he, is he really just, does he want to be like the French who have this, like, language police? Is that what he's all about because he's proud of the language? No, that's not it at all. It, it's got nothing to do with, hey, they just love the Jewish language. No, he is, he's all about the fact that the people of God, how do they hear God? They can only hear God if they understand the language that the scriptures are written in and read to them in. And so he's concerned. Why is it a tragedy? It's because they're not hearing God's word. They're not worshiping God. And if the children lost their language, they lose the scriptures, they lose their faith, they lose God himself. And so he's concerned. It only takes a, a small season, a single generation of inattention, laziness, and compromise in generations of faith in God. And parents, I think it's a warning for us that just because we know about God and we love God, 
let's make sure we're, we're taking care to teach our children the language of the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about the physical language, but teach them to understand the Bible. Teach them to be able to hear God's word. Teach them how to hear from God for themselves. And, and let's make sure they're equipped to worship God and, and not subtly replace that with living for other things. You know, I, I was convicted lately about how easy it is for me to become complacent and lazy. How easy it is to replace emphasizing knowing God through his word with other important things that aren't the most important thing. We can subtly emphasize the false God of with our kids of education as the most important thing or job security or financial stability or we can introduce the false gods of social skills or sports or arts as a, or a myriad of other things with our kids. Instead of saying, you know what, the most important thing is that they understand God's word, that they, they understand and know God's word. You know, if, our, if your kids are wealthy and they are well-educated and well-rounded and they get along with everybody and they are awesome in sports and they play in the NFL or the NBA, whatever your dream sport is, but they don't love God and they don't live for his word, they don't understand his word, then none of those things matter. Now, this is not a parenting lesson, but that is it's definitely one of the sides here is that Nehemiah is alarmed because they can be complacent in their own holiness. You know, Jesus asked, what would it profit a man if he, if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? You know, our personal pursuit of God and our personal holiness, they matter to God. Nehemiah, he's upset with the people. They defiled themselves by joining with those who worship false gods and they act like it was no big deal. You know, where do we join with false gods? Where do we become complacent with sin? Where do we become complacent with our own holiness and think like it's, it's no big deal? That's all right. A little white lie here and there. God doesn't really care. And, and we forget that Jesus died for our sins. His response to their idolatry was intense. Look at what he did in verse 25 to 27. Look, look down your Bibles if you have them with you. Look down. His response to idolatry, it was intense. He, he confronts them. He says he cursed them. He beat them. He pulled some of their hair out. Now, he was the governor, and so some of those punishments were actually the punishments that were in the Mosaic law, and so it was probably in his duties as governor that he was doing these things, but he took sin seriously. Do you take sin seriously to deal with it vigorously in your own life? Do you, do you see where it can lead? Do you see that it's going to lead to the destruction? He gives an example of Solomon. You know what? Hey, Solomon was great and wise and had everything, but he was led astray because he was okay being married to all these foreign women who called him sin, caused him to sin. He says, shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God? It's treasonous to allow ourselves to be joined to idols to allow ourselves to become complacent with our own personal holiness. And he confronts them with God's word. He reminds them of, of how easy it is. Don't think. And it's kind of reminds me of 1 Corinthians when Paul warns, he says, hey, if anybody thinks you, you stand, take heed lest you fall. You think you're doing great right now? You think, hey, this doesn't apply to me. I don't struggle with idolatry. I don't have problems with that. I don't have problems with my holiness. I'm doing just fine right now. And he says, hey, if any of you think, thinks he stands, take heed lest you fall. Not sure why or how the high priest allowed his son to marry Sam Ballot's daughter, but it's easy to make decisions based on expediency. 
It's easy to make decisions based on self-preservation or greed, and I'm guessing that's what was taking place. It's easier to make friends with the enemy. It's easier not to speak up and say, no, I'm not gonna do that. No, no, I'm not gonna live that way. No, I actually, um, those kinds of movies, those kinds of things defile my soul. No, I'm not gonna live like that. It's easier not to say anything to just go along with the flow. It's easier to not live distinctly and to live like the world, but, but then are you really God's people? He wasn't doing this to be mean. He was restoring God's people back to the place where they could receive God's grace. You know, if, if you were told what your life would be like if you continued in your current trajectory, would you want to know what you could correct? You see, God lovingly corrects us. He lovingly confronts us so that we don't grow complacent, so we don't get to the place where we leave behind the worship of God and replace him with other things. You know, what if you saw a, lim- a glimpse of your life 10 years or 20 years from now? What do you think it would be like if you were focusing on the things you're focusing on now? What would you wish you'd done? What would you wish you could spend less time on? What, what would you want people to know if your house was built over a poisonous gas link, leak? And I wonder what people in that day would have changed if they had known when they made those great confessions, hey, we're gonna be tempted along the way. They went from placing conviction and repentance and change, and now they're relapsing in their old habits, and they, they knew that they would do this ahead of time. I'm guessing they would have done differently. You know, what's worse, being stuck in your sin, continuing on the path that takes you away from worshiping God and being okay with it, or being confronted and having an opportunity to change. That's what we see here. Says, Nehemiah, he's confronting them because he wants them to experience the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness of God. You know, I'm sure there were habits and regular routines and practices after he confronted them. They said, you know what? We shouldn't have let those things slide. In hindsight, I wish we had given more attention to things that were really more important. How about you? You know, we need the grace of God that comes from confrontation and God wants to give us grace. That's why we have passages like this here. It's not about beating people up. It's because God wants us to receive his grace and be freed from living for other things. And that's the example we even see with Nehemiah is that God's people rely on the grace of God. That's, that's the final point we have really is that in verses 30 and 31 and, and really in the end of each of those sections, Nehemiah makes some appeals and he says, oh God, remember me. He's appealing to God's grace. Now, he's appealing, hey, God, remember me on the basis of these works. But then we see, I think is it in verse 17, or 22, verse 22. Look in your Bibles there. It says, spare me, and he doesn't say according to my works, but according to the greatness of your steadfast love. That's even Nehemiah's appeal. And yet you think, hey, Nehemiah hasn't done anything wrong here. You know, Nehemiah, he's just been a reformer. He's, just, he's really only obeyed God. All we see through the book of Nehemiah is this guy who is consistently faithful. And yet, he was even appealing to God. He says, spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. The problem is most of us are not like Nehemiah. We're not. We can read the book of Nehemiah and we can think, hey, I'm Nehemiah. Or we can put ourselves in Nehemiah's place. But you know where most of us are most of the time? We're the people that Nehemiah has to drag along and then he's confronting. That's what we live like most of the time. Nehemiah's reforms too in the end and I think why this, this passage ends this way is that we see that Nehemiah's reforms couldn't save them. 
Nehemiah's reforms ultimately could not change their hearts, and their heart was the problem. It was not about external actions and external conformity. They needed heart change, and Nehemiah, he couldn't bring that. And so we're left with this place at the end, really, the, chronologically the last book in the Old Testament, although it's not the last in our Bibles, but chronologically, probably the last book written. And so we're left with this place of, oh my goodness, what in the world? Nehemiah, even the great Nehemiah, could not reform. We need someone else to change. We need a reformer to change something, and it's not externals, and it's not a city, and it's not all these practices, but we need some other change. We need heart change. We need the grace of God. We need confrontation and forgiveness, but we also need grace and power to change. And like Eliashib, we've all moved out from our hearts the means of grace that lead us to know God and worship him. Instead, we've we've looked at other means to satisfy. That's who we're more like. We're more like the people who didn't observe a Sabbath and we tried to provide for ourselves, trusting the ways of the world, looking to other worldly systems, relying on our own ability, resting in ourselves instead of enjoying the freedom of resting in God. We're like those who've married other women who serve foreign gods and serve false idols and wed ourselves to them. We've neglected, we've become complacent, we've been idolatrous. What do we need? We need his cleansing. You know, Nehemiah, he cleansed the temple and it was ultimately looking forward to the greater one who would cleanse the temple 400 and some years after this. Jesus does on, I, I love when he enters into the city triumphantly, the first thing he does is he cleanses the temple. But it was a picture ultimately of what Jesus would finally do in his death when he truly entered into his glory. You see, in his death, he cleansed us. And we're now the temple. He made a way for the Holy Spirit to live within us. And, and he, he gave us a temple that cannot be defiled. He, he is the greater priest who cannot be corrupted. He is, he is the one who is sacrificed. And the sacrifice lasts forever. It can never be rescinded. He's the fulfillment of what Nehemiah tried to do. Jesus did what no one before or since could ever do. We, did, we don't just to be reformed. We need to be reborn. And thanks be to God, if you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, he has done the ultimate. He's made you new. He's reborn you. He's given you the ability now. You don't have to be constrained. They, in some sense, it was not possible for them to stop sinning. You know, the old reformers used to say, not possible to not sin, but now with, with Christ, we are now able to say no to sin. We now have hope that they didn't. He's given us a new heart and a new desire that longs to please God from the heart. So let's look to him. Let's, let's restore, say, Jesus, I want to worship you with my whole life. Thank you that because of you, I can worship you. God, I, I, want, to, I, I want to live my life resting and trusting you. And thank you, Jesus, that because you worked... I can trust in your finished work now. I can trust in the finished work of Jesus on my behalf and no longer rest in my work. And so Jesus, now I want to rest in and trust in you. We can say, thank you, Jesus, that because of you, I want to live for you because you lived and died for me. And now I can live a life that's pleasing to God. You know, Jesus, now he's cleansed our temple with his blood. We, we, we commemorated that today. 
earlier in the service. We were commemorating and celebrating the fact that we need a solution outside of ourselves. We need someone to come in, find us where we are, make us clean, and redeem us so that we can receive grace. Because that's what Jesus ultimately did far better than Nehemiah has done here. And yet, ultimately, our hope is not on our steadfast, on our ability to work, and our hope is still on the steadfast love of God. Nehemiah, he, he prays three times, says, remember me, O God, remember me, O God, remember me, O God, but you know what? I don't want God to remember my work. And thanks be to God that I can pray, remember me, O God, according to your work, according to your steadfast love, Jesus, that you've credited to me, your, your grace, your goodness, your work. God, according to your work, remember me. And let that be our prayer. And let that motivate us to live a life of worship to him. Amen? Well, let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you for hard words. Lord, thank you for confrontation, Lord, that brings grace. Grace.